I'm Dr. Max Pemberton, a doctor and Daily Mail columnist, and this is part one of a special three-part podcast for Mail Plus Health, where I speak to Dr. Richard Viney, consultant urological surgeon and senior lecturer in urology at University Hospitals Birmingham NHS Foundation Trust. This week, we'll be discussing what urology is and answering your questions. So Richard, I suppose one of the questions I wanted to start off with is, is actually what is urology? Because you're this urological surgeon. I think maybe some people wouldn't won't even really understand what, what that word actually means. Yeah, I'll be honest, I didn't know what it meant until I was, uh, until I'd gone way through medical school and been a junior doctor for a couple of years. And it is a sort of slightly enigmatic specialty, but urologists and urological surgeons deal with any problem associated with any of the organs involved in producing uh, urine or involved in the male genital tract. So if we start at the top and work our way down, it's basically the kidneys and adrenal glands, the ureters, the bladder, the prostate in men, the, the penis and testicles in men. The female equivalent of that is actually generally looked after by the gynecologists. And although it's, it's an unusual, unusually sort of uh, below the radar specialty, 40% of all solid cancers are looked after by us as well as dealing with a lot of incontinent stones. And so there's a lot of work for urologists out there. You mentioned cancer. Can you just explain what a solid cancer is? What does that mean? Well, I'm just stripping out things like leukemias and the hematological cancers, which don't give you lumps per se. So if you take those out of the equation, and what you're left with are then the solid tumours, which most of us understand as cancer. So it's surprising then, that it's, you know, for, for a speciality that covers... You know, so much, you know, something that's so serious that actually people don't really know very much about it. Because um, I don't, I don't even think I did a single day, if I'm honest, of urology at medical school. And actually, I remember when I was a doctor, I was just plonked on a urology ward, and I didn't even really understand what it was. And I was walking around, and you know, lots of people have catheters, and I wasn't very good at putting catheters in, and I didn't really understand even what that was as a speciality. So, so it's interesting. So it's it's from kidneys right the way down, really, until the kind of end of the urinary tract. Absolutely. And it's, it's also a strange specialty because would you position it as a surgical specialty, as a medical specialty? Because a lot of what we do is actually now managed with medicines rather than a surgical intervention. And we still consider ourselves as a surgical specialty, but within, within our realms and ranks are people who never actually pick up a scalpel at all and just manage their patients using drugs and uh, creams and things. Interesting. So, so we've had a lot of interest, actually, from listeners. Um, we've had lots and lots of questions, and you very kindly volunteered, or like offered, to, uh, to work your way through them. And I suppose uh, lots of the questions, there was a couple of very specific ones, but actually most of them, I suppose, sort of deal, deal with really general kind of concerns around sort of people's waterworks. So even though maybe it's a, a kind of specific question to that person, I, I think there's, within lots of the questions, there's, there's a lot of sort of general general kind of advice and information. So the first one we had was from a person saying, I'm 64, I'm fit and healthy, but since the menopause started, I have needed to go to the loo at least twice a night. My GP was very reluctant to prescribe anything. Why is that? And is there anything I can do? I think a lot of people would would, uh, relate to that question. Yeah, so a lot of our urinary symptoms could be considered as how bothersome they are. And nighttime voiding is perhaps one of the most bothersome because it disturbs sleep and uh, makes you more tired, etc. And the reality is that going to the toilet at night is quite complicated because it's not just a bladder issue. There are a wider bunch of factors that are usually coming together to cause this problem. Firstly, as one gets older, one sleeps lighter. It's 
It's as simple as that. And if you disturb any person over the age of about 40 in their sleep and wake them up, most of them, if not all of them, will need to go to the toilet to have a wee before they go back to sleep. So one of the first things I'm interested in when patients say I'm getting up a lot at night to go to the toilet is trying to establish whether they're waking up because their bladder is screaming at them, you've got to go, or whether they've woken up and then trying to get back off to sleep, kind of aware of their bladder and feel, you know, I'm just going to empty it just so I can get comfortable to get back off to sleep. So, so, so you have to kind of work out, is it the bladder that's waking you up or is it the fact that you're awake and therefore you're more aware of your bladder? So like which yeah. one's because everyone will go and have a wee before they go to sleep. It's part of their sleeping routine. And so if you wake someone up, they're going to have a wee before they go back to sleep again. When you're younger, you perhaps get away with it, but as you get older, it becomes more ingrained. And then the other thing is that the kidneys, when you're young, your kidneys are very good at, uh, and are very responsive to the diurnal rhythms that, that, that exist. And so they produce more of their urine during the day and less at night. But as you get older, those rhythms start to flatten out. So your kidneys start to produce more urine at night than they perhaps did when you were younger. So if you've got a 500 ml bladder and you're only putting 500 mils out through the course of the night, you'd wake up in the morning, have a really good pee, and you're done. But as you get older, if your kidneys are putting seven, 800 mils out, then there's at least one visit to the toilet that's needed. But also with this aging process, the bladder will change. And sometimes the bladder capacity starts to, 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 to decrease. And so that 500 mil bladder capacity becomes 300 mils. And before you know it, you're getting up three times a night. And so there are multiple factors in play. Other things like a bit of heart failure will also contribute to high urine output through the night. I mean, there are lifestyle uh, things that might change. As you get older, you might find that you enjoy a bit of sherry perhaps before you go to bed to help you get off to sleep. And it's very effective at getting off to sleep, but it's a slight diuretic and will kick those kidneys even harder and produce more urine at night. A diuretic means that it, it oh. produces more urine, is that right? Yes, yeah, it, it makes the kidneys open up and, and release more urine. And it's, 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 it's a system that the kidneys use to help modify blood pressure by how much water we carry within us. Um, but it's interesting, this particular individual is talking about relating it to menopause and menopause change. Because of course, as you go through menopause, you get hot flushes and, and these can disturb sleep even more so. So it may actually be her menopausal symptoms that are driving these trips to the toilet because it's interfering with her sleep. So what, so what would you advise um, What would you advise her to do? Well, I'd reassure her firstly um, that this is not unusual. And if she were to talk to a lot of her friends, she'd probably find that many of them are in similar, if not in worse situation. We could talk about lifestyle, about fluid management after six o'clock in the, in the afternoon stroke evening. And also what's being eaten all the time you have supper, because supper and the food that you eat, of course, is another source of water. Mm -hmm. It's about trying to decrease the fluid loads that are coming on board. Um, also, talk about her sleeping patterns. Does she have a particularly noisy partner in bed with her? Does she have nice, good quality blackout curtains so she, you know, in, in the summer she, she doesn't get disturbed by an early sunrise? Um, maybe using some uh, earplugs if there is ambient noise that's disturbing sleep. The, if, there, if there are hormonal symptoms that are driving her, her wakefulness through the night, maybe looking at whether they could be addressed with either an perhaps an HRT or, or phytoestrogens, which are plant-based estrogens, if she wants to avoid medication. Ultimately, I'd also be interested to make sure there's no other issue for why her bladder symptoms are changing. I'd want to know if she's got any risk factors for other disease processes of the bladder. Is she a smoker, for instance? Might there be an early bladder tumour appearing in this setting? Very unlikely, but you know, that would need exploring the patient, perhaps looking at the urine for traces of blood, that they won't necessarily see themselves, but will be evident under the microscope. 
So she may yet need further investigations to make sure this isn't a, a symptom of something more important. And of course, other things like, does she go a lot during the day? Is she thirsty? Might we be seeing an early di diabetic diagnosis manifesting itself? So there's a little more drilling down to be done here for sure. Um, and ultimately, if the lifestyle measures don't come to anything and our investigations show there's no significant pathology here, one can then look at some simple medication which could improve the behaviour of the bladder. But often patients just want um, reassurance rather than medication. Okay, thanks. So uh, the next question is, I have a sensitive bladder and I get sudden urges to go to the toilet. Occasionally, I don't make it in time. It is particularly bad in the mornings. What could be causing this? I'm only 62. Okay, so this is what we describe as an overactive bladder, particularly if you're getting episodes of incontinence off the back of that. That really is uh, unacceptable, really, and that should be managed. Incontinence is a terribly corrosive symptom and process and can really erode someone's ability and confidence to socialise and incredibly isolating. So that, that, that in itself definitely needs addressing. It's not something that the patient should ever accept as being okay. It isn't, and that's something yeah. we can always do something for. And I think, that's something, I think that's something that quite often people are quite embarrassed about it, so they don't want to talk about it. It's almost like seen as a bit of a joke, you know, kind of like, you know, and, and dismissed, I think, sometimes by doctors of kind of like wetting yourself. Uh, but actually, it has a really profound impact on people's lives, uh, on their mood, on kind of their ability to go out and engage in things and, you know, kind of affects all different choices they make about their life. Yeah. I mean, I like to think that most doctors wouldn't be dismissive, but you're right. I think society paints this view of oh, that's that's what happens to women as they get older it's just one of those things it, mm. you know and and, and and patients will often what if, what drives them to go and see their doctor is often what's been said around them and if they're just being expected and, and that incontinence is normal and it's, it's nothing to worry about then they, they probably are going to be less inclined to go and seek medical help mm. patients need to be aware that it, it's not normal the stuff that can be done to make it better and you know these, these people need to talk to their doctors about it. We can certainly improve the matters. This instance, it sounds like an overactive bladder. When it comes to overactive bladders, the question is, is it primary or secondary? Primary just means the bladder is a little bit, uh, is wired in a way that means that uh, when it reaches its capacity, it's going to empty, it's going to empty quickly. A secondarily overactive bladder means there's some other problem that's driving that. And that could be things like obstruction, particularly in the male, an oversized prostate. It could be due to other pressures on the bladder from extrinsic things like large fibroid uteruses, for instance, uh, or constipation. It could be they've had radiotherapy in the past. Or it could be that, again, they're smokers, they have other risk factors that might mean they have an early cancer process in the bladder, which will also cause irritation in this way. So it certainly needs a bit of a looking at, a bit of investigation. And if it is uh, just uh, a primary overactive bladder, then little things like lifestyle measures can help, such as... Um, uh, exercise and losing weight, stopping smoking if you smoke, cutting back caffeine is a big plus. Uh, so, why, 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 why caffeine and smoking? Tell me about that. So, so caffeine is a stimulant, as is nicotine. And in stimul they stimulate a whole bunch of things inside us, which is why we love these things so much. But one of the things it also stimulates is uh, kidneys. So the kidneys are putting out more urine and stimulate the bladder muscle itself. So if you can avoid these stimulants, although it makes your life perhaps less fun, it will mean your bladder will behave itself. Um, once you've gone through those lifestyle uh, tweaks, and if they don't make a difference, then again, there's medication we can look at, which can start with tablets. The problem with the tablets is that they often carry some side effects, but there'll be a, a trade-off side effects versus symptoms. 
And the side effects are very variable from individual to individual. And there's such a range of medication that it is worth persevering because you might find one that suits you better than others. And if that doesn't work, you can then escalate to using some Botox, which of course is all very fabulous with the film about stars and what have you. But this drug is a fabulous drug for bladder uh, as well as other overactive muscles. And so we can inject Botox directly into the bladder. That can, that can be very effective. Wow. Okay, that sounds fascinating. Uh, so it sounds like so it really kind of falls into two groups. Either it's the actual bladder itself is sort of, as, yeah. as maybe was saying, sort of sensitive, sort of overactive, or it could be something else from outside that that's making it in that particular way. Yeah, and you'd want to address the cause and then the bladder will settle itself. So the great, and often you can tell from the history, if the patient's always had a sensitive bladder, it's likely primary overactive bladder. If the bladder's been as good as gold, then suddenly over a period of a few weeks or a few months, it's suddenly misbehaving. That's more of a worry that something else is going on and therefore really does need looking at. Okay. Uh, the next question, when I cough or sneeze, I suffer from leaking. It's so mortifying that I stopped wanting to go out. A friend suggested I try pelvic floor exercises, but do they really work? I mean, this is something I've heard lots and lots about, pelvic floor exercises. Do, do, do they work? Absolutely. But it's like all exercise. Are you really exercising or aren't you? So uh, an exercise should, by nature, be quite difficult, slightly exhausting and slightly tiring. And so uh, pelvic floor exercises, kegel exercises are, are well established and they definitely make a difference. This uh, stress incontinence will not have... Uh, being a lifelong issue, it's going to have evolved and is a reflection of a slow weakening of the pelvic floor, which goes with age. As one gets older, all one's muscle uh, mass starts to deteriorate, particularly if one's not taking care to try and keep that muscle bulk uh, um, strong and firm. The pelvic floor is no different. And for females, particularly if they've had pregnancies, the weight and stress of the, the carabinus on the pelvic nerves can impact on the, the, the quality and strength of the pelvic floor. And if you've had a normal vaginal delivery, can do even more damage, let alone the, the relaxing hormones that are produced by the placenta also causing a loosening of these tissues. So the, the, the female pelvic floor takes a, a, a battery, there's no doubt. But even if the, the, the lady's not ever had pregnancies or children, the aging process itself will cause some deterioration of the pelvic floor. And if the pelvic floor doesn't have the capacity to create pressure, that's greater than the pressure in the abdomen, coughing and sneezing, then urine will leak. And the way you can build that pelvic floor up is with exercises. And those exercises usually last about five to 10 minutes, three times a day. And when you first start, it's hard work. And most people will not be able to do a full regime. We wouldn't expect them to. If you were going to run a marathon, you'd need to exercise for it. But you wouldn't go and do a 26 mile run straight from, straight from the get-go. You're going to build your way up to that. And those exercises are initially, it can be difficult. And sometimes you need help from a physiotherapist or another specialist that can identify to you what muscle what pelvic floor muscles you're actually trying to squeeze but the best the muscles that are that you do need to be working on those muscles that you'd use to stop yourself midstream if you're having a wing or if you were um, in a lift and you were trying to avoid uh, passing wind again those muscles that's your pelvic floor so if you can get that that sense in your mind those are pelvic floors you must want to squeeze and it's about squeeze relax squeeze relax and it's hard work if done properly. And don't expect- my, mom, my mom always used to say that used to, uh, well, she used to practice it. And I did, I did, uh, until now, I didn't know if it was actually real, a real thing or not. But she used to say she used to imagine someone had rolled up a £10 note and put it between her buttocks and was trying to pull it out again. And she was trying to squeeze. <laughs> squeeze. Yeah. I don't know if that's... That. Yes, that's a very good one. Yes, absolutely. Or, I mean, 
I suppose if, if the lady's used to using tampons, it's about trying to stop that tampon being removed. It, it is just trying to fight to, 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 to hold on to things. But, it, but the other thing is the results won't be immediate. And that's and some people can get disillusioned. They'll start and a week or two later, no immediate benefits. And they'll think, oh, waste of time. It doesn't work. But again, it's like that marathon. You're not going to run those 26 miles until you put the yards in. You have to work at it. So what, what kind of time frame do you think, what, what roughly does it take? Is it months? Well, is it years? I'd say four to six weeks and you'll be seeing some meaningful benefit that will encourage you that you're doing the right thing. And then when your pelvic floor is good, again, once you've done that marathon, you can either hang up your trainers and never do it again, but then you're going to end up back on the sofa at square one. Once you've got that level of fitness up, you should try and maintain it. So once, once the pelvic floor is good and in common, better, you can then ease off. You don't have to continue with that vigorous training regime you could perhaps just look at doing it perhaps you know once a day or maybe once every other day if you're finding it intrusive into your lifestyle but if you build it in a bit like going for a job first thing in the morning it becomes part of your lifestyle and, and that's a good thing so so that question was really about what you was what you called stress incontinence and the one yes. before that was about an overactive bladder so it sounds like there's, uh, two, there's two kind of there's two main causes um, or kind of you know um, ways of viewing um, incontinence in general is that is that right? So it's either yes, the or it's the kind of bits that hold and make us kind of watertight. Yeah. So there's 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 a, a variety of different incontinences, but the principal ones are stress and urge incontinence. The urgency is associated with the frequency and the desire to go. There's true incontinence, which is due to some fundamental structural issue with the, 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 the bladder, which may be fistula it may be one of the pipes the ureters is congenitally plumbed into the wrong place and so the individual just leaking continuously without being aware of it so that's true incontinence and that's usually pretty much from birth or some event has happened that's triggered that but to most people who are normally healthy who suddenly find themselves incontinent it's usually stress or urge or sometimes a combination because what you tend to find is when you cough and sneeze the, the the, the, the pressure within the abdomen pushes down on the bladder. If the bladder's slightly full and you give the bladder a bit of a squeeze from the outside, you trigger a contraction in the bladder. So if you've got an overactive bladder and you cough and sneeze, you can actually generate incontinence. And so the, the perception is, oh, that must be stress incontinence because it happens when I cough or sneeze. But it could actually just be bad urge incontinence, which is being provoked by the coughing and the sneezing. And it, there are some it can be sometimes quite difficult to tease the one from the other and but we have to because of course the treatments are very different and overactive bladder can be usually managed with lifestyle and then medicines where stress incontinence is about pelvic floor exercises and if that fails then some kind of mechanical solution which is invo invariably involves uh, surgery or possibly a pessary or, or bulking agents injected around the urethra but it's some kind of an intervention rather than a tablet okay so the next question, there are times when I have to get up to go to the bathroom about three or four times before I get to sleep. I go, and then when I lie down, I feel like I need to go again. My GP says it's because I'm thinking about it. A kidney infection has been ruled out. So this is interesting. So I suppose we've been talking about the kind of mechanics of going to, going to uh, avoiding your bladder, but this is maybe a kind of more psychological thing. Is, this, is that right? It does sound behavioural, doesn't it? It sounds a bit almost a type of uh, OCD type behavior. It's a bit like, got to go and check the lights, got to go and check the alarms on, I'm going to check the windows. You know, you, you can't shut your mind down until you've gone through this, this sort of, um, this regime of, of behavior. And so, and it can be difficult to unlearn that. 
I don't think it's a pathology. I don't think that randomly the kidneys are suddenly kicking out a load of urine at that particular point in the evening. Um, the postural element may be relevant. There may be something like a large fibroid uterus, which when she lies, shifts and in doing so, perhaps puts a little bit of pressure on the bladder. So there may be some investigations worth doing, but I kind of think that ultimately it would be about some kind of relearning, retraining herself as to how she gets herself off to sleep. Mm. So it might be a kind of more of like a CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy kind of approach. And then maybe even combining that with some kind of meditation so that you're kind of calm and you kind of can reassure yourself, actually, it feels like I'm going, I need to go to the toilet, but actually I don't. And it's okay to just kind of lie here and then hopefully get off to sleep. Yeah, absolutely. But in the end, you've got to ask yourself, yes, it's not great that you have these little, uh, these little habits, but if it's not doing anyone any harm, you know, does it really matter? But if it's driving the marriage to divorce, then maybe it's time to get meditating. Yeah. That's all we've got time for today, but come back next week for part two. In the meantime, if you want more from Richard, he is at thebladderclinic.co.uk and you can find us on Spotify, Apple and Google. Whilst you're there, please leave us a review. And don't forget to sign up for the Daily Mail Plus briefings at mailplus.co.uk. 